0: No plot. It just goes on like that for an hour. It goes on like what? Like that. Torture, murder, mutilation. We never leave that room. Nope. It's a real sicko. Brilliant. For perverts only. Absolutely brilliant. I mean look, there's almost no production costs can't take your eyes off it. It's, it's incredibly realistic. Where do they get actors who can do this? Oh, help me. I think he wants it. Come on. Well, it's worth checking out. Do you have any trouble locking onto it this time? Not after I realized the Malaysia delay was a plant. It's not coming from Malaysia? <laughs> you cannot fool the Prince of Pirates for long. Har- Harlan, where is it coming from? Pittsburgh. That's in the USA.
3: Like that
1: one, you cheap dime store of Andy! You
3: goody. Hello everyone and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 302, Videodrome. Is this the movie that mentions Pittsburgh the most? At least in the most (laughs) fun ways. (laughs) Without actually featuring Pittsburgh? Long live The New Flesh. Mm -hmm. This is a wild ride. This is one that has been on the list for a little while, and I've been anxious to do it, but now that we actually have watched it and are about to do it, I'm so glad we got here because what a movie. (laughs) I'm not
4: generally excited for james woods in a lead role but every time i do watch one of the movies
3: where he is it does seem right <laughs> yeah this is him at like his sleaze yeah sleaziest <laughs> right. which is where he is best yes before we dive in to videodrome let's remind everyone to follow the show on twitter at greatest pod and make sure you subscribe to the podcast on apple Podcasts, podbean etc please give us a rating and review On Apple Podcasts, if you'd like a free sticker, you can let us know on Twitter, at GreatestPod. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. As far as the listener request stuff, I would say tune in next week. That's quietly a soft deadline (laughs) for me to set everything up. Let's just say things are moving along. They're not at (laughs) all, but (laughs) no one seems to really... Care either way, so yeah, right. What difference does it make? But it'll be set up soon, and all that. We'll move forward. More info next week. So let's talk video drum. This was your first time watching. It this? It was yes. What I'm are your gonna... What are your teas? Cool. What are your thoughts? It was kind of reminded
4: me of Total Recall a little bit in a weird way. This unexpected journey starts, and it goes a lot wilder than maybe you would have anticipated. Of course, I was expecting some of the body horror stuff. It's just synonymous with Cronenberg at this point.
3: Some of it pretty gross. (laughs) Which I was also expecting. Pretty gross. Yeah, as far as body horror goes, this and the fly right up there. Uh huh. Mount Rushmore, top of the mountain. But thematically it's as relevant as any movie I've watched
4: in recent memory. I know specifically Oblivion is talking about television but it seems like a lot of the commentary is relevant to what's happened even or become even worse with the internet and social media.
3: Yeah, it's a fascinating film. I think that there's a lot going on as far as commentary and trying to decipher everything that is being said, everything that's being commented on. It's hard to do and sometimes even at odds with itself as Mm -hmm. to what exactly... The message is supposed to be what Cronenberg is interested in in the film, what he's expressing. It almost contradicts itself at times in weird ways, which I guess maybe we'll get into more as we go.
4: Yeah, I can't say that I walked away feeling like
3: I was connecting all of the dots, but (laughs) I tried my darndest. For the first time in his career, Cronenberg had the backing of a major Hollywood studio, in this case Universal, Universal. Which led to his highest budget to date, which was five point nine million, and a wide release. Videodrome was a massive bomb, mm-hmm. recouping only two point one million at the box office. Later, in retrospect, it was decided that they probably should have gone the art house route. Limited release, find the right critical reception, slowly build word of mouth. Instead, it was essentially gone from theaters in about a week. Wow. Part of the show this week, I have a couple of quotes directly from Cronenberg himself, from Cronenberg on Cronenberg from 1992, his book. He says, It began life as something I'd written earlier called Network of Blood. It was a very straightforward melodrama about a man who discovers a strange signal on television— That came from a lot of my own late-night television watching as a kid and suddenly seeing signals come through. This was long before cable when you had the old antenna that you could rotate. As certain strong stations went off the air, you got weaker signals that had been formerly masked coming through. Sometimes they were very strange and evocative. Sometimes you were projecting your own meanings on them because you couldn't hear the sound properly. It was that experience that led me to posit a man who picks up a signal that's very bizarre, very extreme, very violent, very dangerous. He becomes obsessed with it because of its content, tries to track it down, and gets involved in a whole mystery. And to further what you were saying a moment ago, I, I do think that Videodrome is a very prescient film, if not downright prophetic. Yeah, I wrote that down too, prophetic. Prophetic. Certainly ahead of its time, no matter what, either Uh way, the story itself seems to exist on the fringes of society. Ostensibly, it's early 80s Toronto, but it's the darkest edges, the shadows. It's a world that clearly isn't real. Or is it? And that's what's interesting (laughs) about the movie. It feels real, but then things are happening in it. And I'm not just talking about the hallucinations. Everything. Yeah, yeah. They'll just present something to you, but nobody acts as if it's strange, so it's not quite real society. Right. I was telling you, watching it, it felt to me at a certain point that you're
4: in like a fever dream.
3: Yeah, but even before you're really understanding that there's hallucinations, there's a homeless shelter where they present people with their fix of television and no one acts like that's out of the ordinary no (laughs) one's thinking what is this it's just part of the world
4: really was reminding me of inception where they had those little huts or whatever where people would go to be put to sleep and dream
3: yeah i guess the question you have to ask yourself is it more real now than it even was in 1983 i think it's fair to say yeah are the iphones attached to the palms of our hands our own version of flesh guns (laughs) with youtube and twitter and podcasts and patreon anyone can be a modern brian oblivion the technology may change but the ideas remain the same if not even stronger and more relevant
4: yeah i wrote that down get to the part when they're on the talk show but oblivion starts talking about personalities on television and that was the thing that i thought was prophetic because it does feel like you can take exactly what he's saying and just apply to it to like the influencer culture on social media now.
3: I think that you can't get bogged down with the specifics. Obviously, a lot of the technological stuff in the film is out of date. Sure. But the ideas are not out of date. That's for sure. The more times you watch Videodrome, the less you feel like you understand it in a way. <laughs> okay. So it's only uphill for from here for me. Although, if you do it, like I did, which is slowly over time pausing to take notes, you kind of get a grasp on it. But I think the ideas are complex enough that you can't quite wrap your entire head around it just on one viewing, because you're probably only going to come down on one side of it. Because this movie is simultaneously very stridently anti-censorship, but it's playing in a playground of a hypothetical, which would be, well, what if all of the warnings they tell us about the imagery that we're exposed to, sex, violence, sex and violence together, what if they really were as bad for you as they say? Now, obviously, in the film, there's a secret, dark, insidious element of an organization intentionally doing it that almost goes beyond what the content itself is. They're actually attaching something to it that affects you. But Still, that's sort of adding elements to make it a story rather than a morality play or just a dissertation or something. It's sort of like saying in Friday the 13th that if you do these certain behaviors, you will be killed. Yeah. And so they dress it up with a slasher killer in a mask that's going to kill people. Mm -hmm. But in this, they dress it up with this organization, spectacular optical or whatever. But still, the end of the day is if you watch these things, you will die. (laughs)
4: I was listening to Cronenberg talk about the censorship of film in Canada, at least at the time, in the 80s. And he was saying that they would take your film, basically, cut certain things out and give it back to you. Yeah. And if you put the cut pieces back in, you go to jail.
3: <laughs> like, holy shit. So he was like, when I came to America, I was like, this is great. <laughs> It's a word that's overused a lot when talking about weird elements in film. But there is something Lynchian about the logic Mm -hmm. in Videodrome. Maybe that's not fair to Cronenberg. Maybe you should call David Lynch's stuff Cronenbergian. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's not as if Lynch was fully doing his thing the way he does it now back in 1983. But I'm just trying to find some common ground, some similarity. There's a lot of disturbing imagery. A lot of it seems like it's in dreams and fantasies and delusions, similar playground to Lynch. And as I was saying, I do think that Cronenberg is walking a tightrope. He himself, as Matt was alluding to, is vehemently anti-censorship. In fact, he was outraged by cuts made by the studio that weren't even required to secure an R rating for this very film. Well, and that's why there's know. like the two different versions of it that are out there now.
4: Yeah. Look,
3: Universal's not gonna be comfortable with some of this shit. There was something with a dildo in that samurai dreams thing at the beginning and things that were allowed in to yeah. be R. It had already passed to be R rated, but the studio still took it out. But at the same time, the film serves as a thought experiment about what prolonged exposure to these types of sexual violent imagery could do. To an unsuspecting person. Video drums packed with visceral violence, haunting gore, the literal definition of body horror, really. The special makeup effects were devised by Rick Baker, who did An American Werewolf in London. Oh, wow. So some of the top tier stuff.
4: Yeah, the effects are cool. It's not quite the same thing, but it was sort of reminding me of John Carpenter's The Thing.
3: Oh, yeah, for sure. There's a part towards the end that feels very heavily influenced by that as well. Right. It's interesting how things change because there are a few designs, a few special makeup effects, a few moments that I think potentially younger modern audiences would scoff at and say it looks fake. or It doesn't look good. But I think we as an audience know when things are real versus not real. It's just as easy usually to spot CGI. Definitely. But the big difference to me is if we know that both are fake, how do they make you feel? And there's something that Cronenberg's films, these early films, have, whether you're talking about the fly or scanners or the brood, whatever. It's this texture. Yeah. You can see the liquid, you can see the matter, you can almost touch it. It has a tangible quality that CGI just doesn't have.
4: Yeah, I'd say I've been pretty outspoken about my feelings on the topic of practical effects versus CGI, and no difference here. It's cool. I mean, yeah, certain shit does look fake, but it adds to the atmosphere of the movie in a way that CGI fails to.
3: There was also a lot of insane shit that was planned but never shot due to some budget restraints and concerns about how graphic they would end up being in the end, but I think what we're left with is this grimy, tangible thing that you can smell and feel the whole world. It's got that grayish quality, that late 70s, early 80s. I love it. Smoky. Yep. Smoggy. Even the look and feel of his apartment. His apartment is really cool. Yeah, I love
4: that he has those double glass doors to go to his bedroom.
3: Yeah, and it has those weird glass blocks right by the door to get in and stuff. It's just an interesting design. Andy Warhol called Videodrome a clockwork orange of the 1980s. Pretty cool when you can get a pull quote from Andy Warhol like that. Definitely. Put that right on the yeah. cover. Get that framed. As we've been trying to do, we'll point out when in a, a movie that we're covering is available to stream for free. Unfortunately, Videodrome is not right now, so that would be a rental much like out of sight. But fortunately for me, you had two copies... So I was able to borrow one. Yeah, I had the Criterion Blu-ray, but I also got the 4K from Arrow. I would recommend either. I don't really know how much of a difference there actually is in terms of the The visual quality. So let's get into it. I have a decent amount of notes, even though the film is not particularly long. But a lot of things do seem to happen. (laughs) Trying to explain some of this stuff is... (laughs) Weird enough I think it's one of those movies that if you hadn't seen it And you just read the plot synopsis Beat by beat You would be laughing thinking like what the fuck (laughs) What? Wait what? I sort of felt that way watching the plot Unfold Max Wren, played by James Woods Is the president of Civic TV A Toronto UHF television station Specializing in Sensationalist programming Cool job Gotta give him that As we said, this is where Woods is at his best. Seedy, greasy, smoky. He's a uniquely underhanded, sleazy protagonist. Something Woods is well-equipped to pull off. He's one of those dudes that's very outspoken on (laughs) Twitter and sort of seems like a nutcase. He just never really comes across as likable. No. But yeah, and you've heard... Plenty of stories about him and about some of the stuff he said and done, Uh but that's sort of the world we're living in now. Next week, we're doing a movie with a canceled person in it. (laughs) There's going to be several canceled people this year coming up in our films. But
4: on the Wolf of Wall Street episode, we talk about the Leonardo DiCaprio effect. The James Woods effect is quite the opposite. You're just like ready to not like this guy.
3: Although it does seem like Certain people don't like DiCaprio now because of who he dates and all of that stuff, but yeah, well, it's not quite reached the James Woods level. (laughs) No, (laughs) Civic TV is actually patterned after City TV, a television station that started out in Toronto and was particularly infamous for showing softcore sex films as part of its late night programming, which is an interesting factoid to consider because one of the things in our overly puritanical world that we live in now, it's hard to imagine that the station he works for could possibly exist and be real. Right. Now, I do think that they push it way further than just softcore porn, but the idea is still kind of there, and I don't know how well-regulated some of these things were at, at certain points of time, because even though the station he works for is real and legitimate, The whole story is sort of dabbling in pirate television broadcasts. Yeah, yeah. It seems like there's a public access thing going on. Something like that. Yeah. I don't think that they could literally do everything that it seems like they do or want to do in this movie, but knowing that there was an actual program or an actual channel called City TV that was in the realm of this that lets you know that it's not complete fantasy right from the jump. Like... It's a little bit more exaggerated, but it's not invented completely. I guess my point is, it seems like it could be, especially now. There's no way there would be a TV station like this now. Right. The little preview of the programming they have is called Samurai Dreams, and even though there is nudity and sex in it, it's deemed (laughs) to be too classy. (laughs) That one guy is like, it's not tacky enough. I don't like it, not tacky enough. They're on a constant quest for titillating content. That's what they're looking for. Just something to fill the time. Mm -hmm. Lowest common denominator type shit. Harlan, the operator of Civic TV's unauthorized satellite dish, shows Max something called Videodrome, though they don't know the name initially. It's a plotless show Harlan believes is being broadcast from Malaysia, which depicts anonymous victims being violently tortured yeah, and eventually murdered. Which, by the way, he has the location way off. Yeah, they explain that, though. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah. he knows. <laughs> True. What, he, he's maybe just putting on a whole performance, Yeah, acting as if certain sh- things are happening.
4: The show does seem fun.
3: At first, all they have is a 53-second clip, but Max is intrigued. Now, just saying that the victims are being violently tortured and eventually murdered doesn't even really fully present it, because there is a sexual element to it. S and M to the extreme. Something going on with this clay wall in the background. It's a very sparse set. They basically bring the people in. I sometimes they're nude, sometimes they're not. They're whipped and beaten. But the fact that the head programmer of a television station is like this seems like something we could put on TV is so hilarious <laughs> because it's beyond. I know pornography. It's essentially it's w- murder. Well... You don't know. He doesn't seem to think that. Right. At all. Yet. But it's the type of thing that... And nobody gets killed in the 53-second yeah, yeah. clip that he has. But okay.
4: It would be envelope pushing. <laughs>
3: Let's say that.
0: <laughs> I find myself getting just a little nervous, even, even if you've been doing it all your life,
5: don't you think? Oh, you yeah. Oh, for sure. Of course, that's part of the excitement of it. Mm-hmm. <gasps>
1: Huh? No thanks. So, just relax.
2: And now, here it is, the Rena King Show. And this afternoon, Rena's guests are Max Wren, controversial president of Channel 83, radio personality Nikki Brand, and media prophet Professor Brian Oblivion. Take it away, Rena.
5: Max Wren. Your television station offers its viewers everything from softcore pornography to hardcore violence. Why?
0: Well, it's a matter of economics, Rena. We're uh, small. In order to survive, we have to give people something they can't get anywhere else. And uh and we do that.
5: But don't you feel such shows contribute to a social climate of violence and sexual malaise? And do you care?
0: Certainly I care. <laughs> I care enough, in fact, to give my viewers uh, a harmless outlet for their, their fantasies and their frustrations. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a socially positive act.
5: What about it, Nikki? Is it socially positive?
1: Well, I think we live in overstimulated times. We crave stimulation for its own sake. We gorge ourselves on it. We always want more, whether it's tactile, emotional, or sexual. And I think that's bad.
0: Then why did you wear that dress? sorry? That dress, it's very stimulating. And it's red. You know what Freud would have said about that dress?
1: And he would have been right. I admit it. I live in a highly excited state of overstimulation.
0: Listen, I'd really like to take you
5: off to dinner tonight.
1: Professor Oblivion. What do you think?
5: Do you think erotic TV shows and violent TV shows lead to desensitization, to dehumanization? The microphone.
6: The television screen has become the retina of the mind's eye. Yes. That's why I refuse to appear on television, except on television. Of course, Oblivion is not the name I was born with. That's my television name. Soon, all of us. Will have special names. Names designed to cause the cathode ray tube actually, to resonate.
5: Yes, I am actually. Yes. Yes, yeah. I am very Nikki. Is Max Rand a menace to society? I'm not sure.
1: He's certainly a menace to me.
3: Max appears on a local television show as a guest alongside Nikki Brand. Yeah. Played B- by Deborah Harry.
4: Maybe one of the best talk show appearances I've ever seen, openly hitting on one of the other people featured.
3: She's a radio host and Brian Oblivion, an enigmatic media theorist who does not appear in studio with Max and Nikki, but rather via his own television screen from an undisclosed separate location. The first question that the host asks is, Max a menace? <laughs> And yeah, he immediately goes for Nikki, and she's kind of into it. Yeah. You're not really sure what her persona is supposed to be. Is her public-facing persona supposed to be feminist, supposed to be anti-him? But then privately, she's the opposite? It's sort of unclear. Because I think when you watch a film, you bring in your own prejudice. Mm -hmm. And part of that is stuff you've already seen. And so your mind starts to jump ahead. Right. And even if you're wrong, sometimes what you've jumped ahead to still sort of lingers. There's like a seed that was planted. So then if you actually watch the film and you break down everything she says, it's unclear exactly what her deal is. Her stake in all of this topic would be. Is she supposed to be presenting the opposite viewpoint and she's the known feminist perspective being brought on to counteract this guy who trades in sleaze and porn, basically. <laughs> but I don't know. She never yeah. really goes full-fledged against him. Because no. then once Brian Oblivion takes over the show, he just hits on her, and then she's pretty receptive to it. Right. <laughs> Got
4: to give Lindsay some credit. She recognized Debbie Harry right away. I don't think I would have, other than I saw her name in the credits, Deborah Harry, right. I, I wouldn't have known what she looked like.
3: You mean you don't know what she looks like at all?
4: No, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't have recognized her. No, like I know Blondie obviously, but I don't know if I've ever seen her in another movie.
3: But you've seen a picture of her, though, right? You know what she looks like.
4: I wouldn't have recognized, like, I wouldn't have known, known her. Oh wow! Yeah, Lindsay Millennial uh, Matt
3: strikes again, citing
4: VH1's "I Love the '80s" is
3: what, she, <laughs> why she knew what she looked like. Well, she is sort of a major sex icon. Yeah. Well, she is for me now. Let's say that. Turns out that the Mysterious Torture Show is actually being broadcast out of... Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. (laughs) Which hilariously comes up several times. Yeah. I had actually forgotten how much it comes up. I remembered it. I changed my letterbox location to Videodrome years ago at this point to be funny. But I didn't realize how often it's brought up. And it's almost used as like a quip... When someone gets killed later in the film.
4: I know, there were several moments where I wanted to take a quick shot of the subtitle.
3: (laughs) Although it makes sense. (laughs) If there ever was a city built for a torture-murder show, it's actually being hosted by me in in the basement of this building.
4: Executive producer.
3: Believing Videodrome to be the future of television, Max orders Harlan to begin... uh, unlicensed use of the program so essentially get everything you can we're gonna just start using it they're trying to track down where it's coming from or who owns it but he doesn't seem overly concerned with that yet max and nikki do hang out
4: it goes well
3: it really doesn't take long at all no for nikki to reveal a lot about (laughs) herself Dude, i was like this seems like zach's kind of girl this is a first date for the ages (laughs) She's digging through Max's videotapes in his apartment, looking for porno. Uh-huh. To get the night started. Comes across Videodrome, puts it on, and loves it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it does seem like it is freaking him out a little bit.
3: It is odd behavior for a first date. Yeah.
4: <laughs> the fact that she is trying to figure out how she can be a contestant on this show.
3: I'm definitely not one to slut shame or kink shame no, but no i'm talking about in terms of normal dating etiquette etiquette it's yeah. a little strange to go this far right away <laughs> she's like max i've brought a whip in my purse i want you to use it on me i know we met five take a ago. pocket knife out and start cutting my shoulder <laughs> yeah which is not a joke <laughs> she does say that <laughs>
1: God, I can't believe it. I'll turn it off. No, 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 it's okay. I can take it. Can you get it any clearer?
0: It's a pirate tape. They scramble it. I like it. Yeah?
1: Yeah, it turns me on. Take out your Swiss army knife and cut me here just, just a little. So like
0: somebody's beat me to it.
1: I wonder how you get to be a contestant on this show.
0: I don't know. Nobody ever seems to come back next week.
1: <laughs> Wait, what did you say happened to your shoulder? A friend. I think he'd like video drama.
0: You let somebody cut you?
1: Uh-huh. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. You want to try a few
3: things? The lady's a sadomasochist and is not afraid to share it on a first date, completely blowing Max away. <laughs> she asks, want to try a few things. Next thing you know, they're nude. Big question. Yeah, they're doing
4: that side sex position, which also is featured again in Crash. So I guess Cronenberg may be a fan.
3: Yeah, so you were taking it to be that while he's piercing her ear with that long needle, he is also inside of her, or what is going on It kind of seemed that way. Videodrome continuing to play in the background.
4: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. The piercing of the ear also on the first date.
3: Yeah, so she's truly a masochist. She is all about the pain Mm -hmm. in any form, whether it's a knife on the shoulder or a needle through the ear. They make love on Max's living room floor, but as they do, they seem to find themselves screwing on the set of Videodrome, and so it's begun. We don't know what yet, but ultimately the hallucinations have already started. But they're small at first and normal. Well, relatively normal. Once Max has gotten a taste of Videodrome, the old stuff, just not cutting it. Yeah, yeah. He's rejecting the standard... Softcore fare that they're offered usually at the network. He's completely desensitized, which again, the film is ahead of its time here. When you think about the prevalence of modern, violent, crazy pornography that you can be exposed to online in seconds. And as much as parents probably try to shield their children from this stuff, it's like a, a dam that's about to burst. Really, yeah. It, there's just no holding it back. At a certain point, it's so out there. And as someone who enjoys pornography myself, it's hard. <laughs> right. it, you start to walk into that hypocritical ground. But at the same time, there was something endearing about being interested in sex and boobs mm-hmm. growing up. And sure, you had to really work for it (laughs) and it was a special moment a special occasion to find a playboy or something like that it was an epic poem to seek this stuff out and now it does seem like that's kind of missing from the world and you take it for granted and once you start taking it for granted it doesn't mean anything which unfortunately i think does translate into misogyny and things of that nature because you have so devalued it now. Uh-huh. I'm not anti pornography. I'm not anti nudity or, or or anything like that, but there should still be some sort of a meaning to it. And I think if you from a young age if there's no effort, it's anything your mind can think of and you find it in seconds, then it it sort of starts to become valueless. Sure. Yeah. And you're going down a weird and and tricky road. And that so already to... that's like exemplified by Max. Yeah. <laughs> The stuff that he usually was buying to put on his stupid channel, once he's gotten a taste of this shit, he's Uh like, no, 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 nothing else is going to be as titillating as that.
4: Depravity, alive and well.
3: Masha, played by Lynn Gorman, one of Max's usual hookups for the softcore stuff, she's a little disappointed that he's turning her down, but he does send her in search of Videodrome since the other stuff isn't cutting it. So she's got a new project. She's gonna get like a commission. She could be like the finder's fee if she can find who owns this and and get it onto his channel.
4: I was compelled by this whole business. I mean, I, obviously, I know that TV programming exists and is a thing, but this almost had like a private investigator vibe to it.
3: Oh yeah, the film itself has a mystery noir feel to it. Right. Even if it is non traditional in almost every sense. Yes. This is the kind of shit that. Was on the fringes of society, fringes of television even. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about ultra-violent, ultra-sexual stuff, but just the low-rent stuff that might fill some time slots on very small networks somewhere, not yeah. your Seinfeld reruns that you're going to have to pay for. <laughs> <Right>. into- <laughs> it's not like quite like that. Max and Nikki begin a full-on sexual relationship. Though Max tries to convince her not to, Nikki is so aroused by Videodrome that she decides to audition for the show. When she learns it is being broadcast out of Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm. to emphasize how serious she is about the whole thing, she presses a lit cigarette to her breast.
4: Yeah. (laughs) Sort of a weird move.
3: Yeah, because it's kind of apropos of nothing. Right. She's just like, check this out. (laughs) Yeah. You think I'm fucking around? And he's like, no, don't. In a way, he is insinuating that she's not hardcore enough. True. True. He's like, no, 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 this is real fucked up. You can't get mixed up in this because... Yeah, he's challenging her. He's starting to wonder what exactly is going on. I know. and Even I was, if he doesn't think the murder part is real, I guess he's starting to think there's something not right about it. I was telling you before the show, it's at this point
4: that I really wanted the movie to swerve in that direction and follow her to Pittsburgh to
3: be on this show. Instead... This is the last time we see her as she is. Now, she does appear throughout the rest of the film, but this version of her Mm -hmm. goes missing and never comes back. But the whole question of what exactly is going on with Nikki is something that we'll have to get into later because it is very confusing.
4: It becomes less clear as we move forward, I'd say.
3: Oh, yeah. Max is messing around in a world he doesn't fully grasp. He wants to exploit it, but not necessarily live in it like Nikki does. Sure. So when she starts doing this shit... He's like, maybe this girl is a little too hardcore for me. Yeah. It's all fun and games until whatever your line is gets crossed, and Mm -hmm. then it starts not seeming fun. Yeah,
4: I am not built for this type of relationship. You, on the other hand...
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'd be like, give me that cigarette, let me do it. I'm just kidding. Folks, come on. We're just joking around. Yeah. (laughs) It's Masha from whom Max learns the truth about Videodrome. The footage is not faked, but real. It's the public face of some kind of political movement. It's something very dangerous. Masha further informs him that Professor Brian Oblivion knows something about Videodrome or is in some way connected. Max is a little bit more on alert now, though, because he's got a little skin in the game, with Nikki going off and getting herself mixed up in whatever it is. Mm -hmm. If he had learned this information previously, he would probably be at some sort of moral crossroads as to whether or not he should still put it on his channel, which is its own movie, I guess. But now that Nikki's involved, he's thinking, okay, well, fuck, this is a world before cell phones. Once she leaves town, who the fuck knows how to get a hold of her? The character of Brian Oblivion is actually based on Marshall McLuhan, Cronenberg, was a student of McLuhan's during college. McLuhan lived from 1911 to 1980. He was a Canadian philosopher whose work is among the cornerstones of the study of media theory. He studied at the University of Manitoba and the University of Cambridge. McLuhan coined the expression, the medium is the message. He also predicted the World Wide Web 30 years before it was invented he was a fixture in media discourse in the late 60s, though his influence began to wane in the early 70s. In the years following his death, he continued to be a controversial figure in academic circles. However, with the arrival of the internet and the World Wide Web, interest was renewed in his work and perspectives. There's a little background on that, and just reading that, you can kind of draw some yeah really lines right to oblivion and see what Cronenberg was going for. Again, just oddly prescient. Definitely. You're basing Oblivion on a character who predicted the existence of the World Wide Web 30 years before its existence. Another quote from Cronenberg, from the book Cronenberg on Cronenberg. It was an odd movie, he says. The crew was really freaked out by it, most of them people I'd worked with many times. We had some ladies come in and take their clothes off, then we chained them to the Videodrome wall and beat them. Not for real. (laughs) Yeah, really. One or two of them quite loved it. Most of them were extras, and it had never had this kind of attention, but the weirdness of it actually excited a couple of them. One kept reappearing on set, very made up, very dressed, and just floated around. Yikes. It was strange. She was someone who'd been strangled and beaten in the scene, so it was undeniably freaky being on that set. It makes sense that it was. It was supposed to be. Yeah. What do you think he's insinuating about that woman? Well, that brings you into another aspect of Videodrome beyond just the technological, the media, the exposure to things element. I think that it also oddly taps into the mystery of human sexuality, too. And I know that it really bummed Cronenberg out some of the criticism around how the Nikki Brand character is written, because you get into that whole generic criticism of, essentially, you boil it down to... Nikki Brand is a representative for all women, and the things that she does is a statement about women. And if Cronenberg was annoyed by this, but
4: yeah, it's always just seems like a shortcut to thinking that just seems weird that that would be what someone's setting out to express with something like this.
3: There's a whole complexity to human sexuality that is so strange and unique to each individual person that it's hard to really encapsulate it in one film especially if that's not the film's goal, that having a masochistic character who is also female can trouble people. But I think in reality, you have to look at sexuality as like its own separate thing. Mm -hmm. Even in the person who's expressing it or the person who's feeling it, it's not representative of them as a whole, which I guess sort of conflicts with the identity politics that we're, we're sort of forcing on ourselves these days. But Think of it like this. A woman like Nikki Brand in the film, for example, may have these masochistic fantasies like Catherine Deneuve and Belle de Jour or something like that even. And then those fantasies may contradict how she feels about a number of other things or how she lives her life. In other words, you can still be a feminist and have these types of fantasies. You can still be a feminist and have rape fantasies even. There's all different things, and the reasons why you have these fantasies can be different for all different kinds of people. I think people also get a little uptight and nervous when you discuss it because Mm -hmm. you might be talking about, well, somebody experienced abuse or sexual trauma, and that's why they have them. And that is possible, of course, but I don't think that's 100% across the board. There's no like one-to-one as like, oh, this happened to me, that means I get boners from feet. Oh, yeah. If we knew the answer... Then we would know the answer. But we don't there's no hundred percent correlation as to like why these things feel a certain way. And so I think the knee-jerk reaction of people who don't feel the same is to get upset and uptight about it. Whether you're talking about Nikki Brand in this film or Catherine Deneuve and Belle de Jour, or even the spanking scene in Inherent Vice that was also sort That's of right. tricky for people to sort of wrap their minds around that we talked about a lot. Uh-huh. There's all these different things, and it's like Well, just because someone wants this sexually in this moment does not speak for all of women or all of men. And it doesn't necessarily even speak for them outside of that moment. In other words, once you close the bedroom door and do what you're doing to get off, that doesn't necessarily affect everything else about your life. To me,
4: that's the lowest form of analysis to just take one thing from one character and say that that's representative of all... Well, they usually just
3: don't say it like that. But yeah, yeah, that's sort of what the implication is by what they get uptight or upset about. But I I ultimately think characters like Nikki Brand are interesting. Now, is she a little bit two-dimensional? Sure. Mm -hmm. This movie's 88 minutes long. Yeah. And when we find out the truth about her character, it makes even more sense. I guess why we don't know a ton about her.
4: Like I said, I mean, I want to see the other movie where we follow her to Pittsburgh. (laughs) I just want to spend more time with her.
3: But maybe she didn't really go to Pittsburgh. Yeah, I know. That's the whole thing. Maybe she is sort of like Shasta Faye. Yeah. <laughs> we don't really know what going Shasta Faye Hepworth. I think part of the reason why this movie is so cool and so in-depth is that it it touches on all of these different uh-huh. things. Because the main focus is not really human sexuality and what gets us turned on, what gets us going. But that it's just a part of it. And it, you sort of touch on it and then move on to all this other different interesting stuff about media and our exposure to it and our reactions to it and that's much more of the focus but yeah there's so many different intricate things swirling together here right and i think that the more times you watch videodrome you can sort of dive into all these different worlds and what everything might mean (laughs) it reminds me of this stupid sketch from snl that they did i think megan fox was the host oh wow it was so it was probably around jennifer's body and it was like a sketch where they're being like truthful about the type of people who are calling one of those like 1-800-LOVELINE things to hook up or whatever. Oh, yeah. Teenage boys at a sleepover and you know all these different things and it's like right. murderers. And then like <laughs> two people later it's like women who want to be murdered.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it does seem like if you signed up for Videodrome you immediately end up on a
3: list. To watch it or be on it? No, an FBI most wanted list. <laughs> <laughs> to be on it or to watch it? Both. Well, I don't think you're going to need to be on a list if you're on it. <laughs> I think the list pretty much takes care of itself in that <laughs> yeah. sense.
4: You're crossed off the list as well.
3: I just think that like expressing these darker things has always been an issue, and that's why someone like Nikki Brand may be intrigued by going on the show because they can't quite wrap their mm-hmm. mind around how to do this in real life. You're you're sort of drawn to what you see, and so right. even though to a normal person, not normal—that's the wrong word—but to a person who doesn't feel these things, you it's, might be wondering, like, what? What? What do you mean? You want to be on the show? And it's like, well, they yeah. see it. I know it's an, and ext- they're intrigued
4: by it. It's an extreme example, but I think most people can relate to unique
3: urges. You know, <laughs> <laughs> most people probably have the urge to turn this podcast off right now. <laughs> well, that would not be a unique one. Yeah, not unique amongst our listeners. (laughs) Max tracks oblivion to a homeless shelter where vagrants are herded in and encouraged to engage in marathon sessions of television viewing. So in this world, one of the givens is that you can have a TV addiction and this is something akin to a methadone clinic or something, except it's for television and no one seems to question this or think that it's weird. But I think that in terms of applying this movie to today, you can look at it and think, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be tv Mm -hmm. think about the responses people get in their brains to things that they become addicted to on their phone whether it's outrage or likes validation whatever it may be it's sort of the same thing
4: cute puppy videos on instagram
3: when you think about today you have the streaming binges you have people who are in constant need of comfort tv viewing they just put on the same sitcoms over and over again You also have the weird obsession with reality TV and these fake worlds that people live in, and then the audience at home is living vicariously through them somehow. There's all kinds of different dependency on television that still exists now, but you can also branch it out to the internet and everything else too. Max discovers that Oblivion's daughter Bianca, played by Sonia Smiths. Runs the mission, intending to help her father realize his vision of a world in which television replaces every aspect of everyday life.
4: Which, you know, I'd say we're somewhat living in that world.
3: Yeah, may have been accelerated a little bit by the pandemic, but mm-hmm. we we ultimately got used to that world where we only connected through our screens. Yes, Max wants to speak directly with Oblivion. She says that he prefers to send tapes and hasn't spoken to anyone directly in 20 years. She's pretty cagey in terms of her father's actual whereabouts. And when Max mentions Videodrome, Max has this girl that works for her named Bridie. Oh, yeah. I like her. Yeah. Very likable. Uh huh. But the hallucinations have started. He thinks that he hits Bridie at one point, and then she's like, What are you talking about? Right.
1: Videodrome.
3: What you see on that show,
5: it's for real.
1: I'm gonna audition. I was made for that show.
5: It has something that you don't have, Max. It has a philosophy. And that is what makes it dangerous. This is your wake-up cassette. And this is something that came to the office for you by courier.
0: What did they say at CRAM?
5: They said that Nikki Brand is definitely not on assignment for them. She had a month off coming to her. She decided to take it now. Don't touch that! Ah. 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 Jesus, Max, you scared me. What the hell's wrong with you?
0: I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think I'm getting like a rash or something. What? Are you all right? Brady, I'm so- I didn't mean to hit you.
5: Hit me. You didn't hit me.
0: No, no, no. I know I didn't hit you. I mean.
1: In... <sighs> Do you want me to stay here?
0: Uh.
5: You look awful. Can I get you something?
0: No, um, no, I'm just, uh, uh, I'm, I'm exhausted. I was, I was in a deep sleep when you knocked, and I guess I'm uh, still not out of, I'll remember to set the timer. Don't worry. You're sure? I'm sure. Are you sure? Yeah. Thanks, Bridie. Tomorrow.
5: Max, that other cassette is from the office of Brian Oblivion. I promised I'd hand deliver it directly to you. Will you call me if you need me?
3: Well, first, she's someone else, too, right? Well, no, she's her, and then she turns into Nikki for a second. Right. And he's getting all freaked out. She tells him the truth about Nikki, meaning I guess he had her go check on what was going on at the radio station and finds out that she was not sent to Pittsburgh on assignment and that she's been using vacation time that she had coming. So, in other words, no one's really seen her. Oh no boy. knows what's going on. Bridie does leave a tape from Oblivion, the tape itself seems to be living and breathing. It almost moans. Yes. It looks crazy. I it's know. It's got that crazy look to it. It's like pulsating. Yeah. No, I know. A lot of
4: these effects are sort of unsettling.
3: Max views the tape in which Oblivion, played by Jack Creeley, informs him that Videodrome is a socio-political battleground in which a war is being fought to control the minds of the people of North America. And then there's a shift on the tape where he does seem to be more speaking directly to Max
4: I got to tell you I was starting to feel like a little bit of a Halloween 3 season of the witch scheme going on here
3: Well it's funny that you bring that up cuz <laughs> I have a whole thing get, okay. that we're going to get to about Halloween 3 All right Although I don't know that the scheme is similar but Well
4: the mind control through television
3: y- yeah I guess there's like I mean, something I know being Stonehenge attached to is involved but This is like more a commentary, though, on the actual content of the thing. It's like a little bit of a deeper meaning, but I kind of get what you mean, that something's being broadcast through the show itself. Oblivion tells Max, your reality is already half video hallucination. If you're not careful, it will become total hallucination. That's what makes this movie hard to understand, but they do sort of tell you what's going to happen. Yes, that we're going to start going down a road that seems insane because it's not real, per se.
4: And I think that there is sort of a hard shift in even his interactions with people. They almost all seem to
3: not feel real anymore. Yeah. I think as you move along, the reality becomes less and less, and he loses touch with anything that could possibly be real. A hooded figure emerges on the tape, garroting oblivion who says he was Videodrome's first victim.
6: The battle for the mind of North America will be fought in the video arena, the Videodrome. The television screen is the retina of the mind's eye. Therefore, the television screen is part of the physical structure of the brain. Therefore, whatever appears on the television screen emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. Therefore, television is reality, and reality is less than television. Max, I'm so glad you came to me. I've been through it all myself, you see. Your reality is already half video hallucination. If you're not careful, will become total hallucination you'll have to learn to live in a very strange new world i had a brain tumor and i had visions i believed the visions caused the tumor and not the reverse i could feel the visions coalesce and become flesh uncontrollable flesh when they removed the tumor, it was called Videodrome. I was the- I-I was Videodrome's first
0: victim. But who's behind it? What do they want?
1: I want you, Max.
3: The hooded figure who kills Oblivion reveals themselves to be Nikki who also speaks directly to Max, seemingly answering him back as if they're communicating through the TV. Uh The entire television undulates, ripples, and breathes. There's an extreme close-up on Nikki's mouth, beckoning Max. The screen bulges outward, and Max buries his face in it as if the surface is soft and malleable. So his face just sort of goes into the screen that's bulging out. Uh It's sort of reminiscent of the effects in... A nightmare on Elm Street when he's Freddy's yeah. bulging through the wall, where you have that weird, rubbery, malleable surface. Uh-huh. But it looks really cool in this a couple of times because they project through like a back projector the snow from oh. the TV. So it still yeah. looks like the TV is doing it, but it's whatever they've built to, you know, to emulate a TV. But without CGI, you have to come up with a way of like, how does it still look like a TV screen? So they project the snow on it as if it's.
4: I know, and it just gives it this unique feel and look that with CGI, everything just sort of looks the
3: same. Well, yeah, you get the sense that even though it's fake, that James Woods, when he puts his face in the screen, is actually touching something. Right. More disturbed than ever and clearly losing grip on reality, Max returns to Oblivion's homeless shelter. He confesses that he's been hallucinating regularly and that he's seen Videodrome. Bianca tells him that Videodrome carries a broadcast signal that causes the viewer to develop a malignant brain tumor. It's like, thanks. (laughs) Thanks for the heads up. You do realize I mentioned Videodrome the last time I was here, Right. right? Her father helped to create it as part of his vision for the future and viewed the hallucinations as a higher form of reality. When he found out it was to be used for malevolent purposes, Oblivion attempted to stop his partner's they then used his own invention to kill him. In the year before his death, Oblivion recorded tens of thousands of videos, which now form the basis of his television appearances.
7: This is him. This is all that's left.
0: What are you talking about?
7: Brian Oblivion died quietly on an operating table 11 months ago.
0: The brain problem?
7: The drone problem. You have it too.
0: But he was on that panel show with me.
7: On tape. He made thousands of them, sometimes three or four a day. I keep him alive as best I can. He had so much to offer. My father helped to create Videodrome. He sought his next phase in the evolution of man as a technological animal. When he realized what his partners were going to use it for, he tried to take it away from them. And they killed him. Quietly. At the end, he was convinced that public life on television was more real than private life in the flesh. He wasn't afraid to let his body die.
0: (sighs) Tell me about my video drone problem.
7: My father knows much more about it than I do. Listen to him.
3: So this is completely insane. It would never work. It's impossible to pull off. However, it's so strange and unique, and the concept feels new in 83 that you sort of roll with it. You're like, oh, wow, that's cool. This hmm. guy's been dead, but everything we see of him is a pre recorded tape. It just has all these different scenarios mapped out of what he could say. Now, of course, that would never work. It's not fucking Home Alone, where you tape it off the TV and then are somehow able to play it back so it syncs up with a conversation. <laughs> I know. I but was thinking that. still, you're like, oh, that's cool. Oh, yeah. That's why he always appears on another television when he's on these shows. Right. He's never actually there. I know, but I was thinking of Bianca having to like rewind and line up certain answers. But she doesn't. I know. Because she has no control once the tape is sent out. I'm going to give you to the count of 10 to get your yellow, no good sticking. Okay. Max finds out that Harlan is evidently not hallucinating, but Bianca has provided Max with some tapes to watch, some further explanation from Oblivion himself that he pre recorded. So I get what you're thinking, especially if you've never seen Videodrome before. Pretty normal movie so far, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, now things are going to get real weird. Yeah, yeah. The (laughs) post-malignant brain tumor part of the movie. Everything up until this point has been sunshine and rainbows and makes complete sense. (laughs) Now we're really going to go off the rails. Later that night, while watching the tapes from Oblivion, Max suddenly has a giant vaginal slit running up the middle of his abdomen. Mm -hmm. He responds to this in the most normal and reasonable way imaginable. Pulling a gun out. By taking a gun and jamming it in there. Let me jam this gun up. My slit. Yeah. (laughs) My my tummy slit.
4: (laughs) And then dropping it. Losing
3: it. Yeah, the slit disappears, and it seems like the gun is still in there. Oh, no. I made a big mistake. (laughs) What am I going to (laughs) do? Frantically searching the couch for it. Maybe I just dropped it. Again, in 2023, this doesn't look real by any means, but it looks so much cooler this way. I know. Because he's actually reaching into something. And putting his hand in it, it feels real in that sense. It's not hypothetical. Yeah. It's not ones and zeros. Well, I guess everything is, but you know what I mean.
4: Yeah, and with Cronenberg, I am a little bit too much of a view of organs. I don't want to see organs. Matt
3: does not have the stomach for the true Cronenberg. No. (laughs) The phone rings. Max is being contacted by Barry Convex, Videodrome's producer, so he's got no more time to worry about where that damn gun is. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, I guess I got to move on now. Yeah. At just clocking in at 88 minutes, Videodrome is tight as hell. It moves fast. There's not an ounce of fat. If anything, you kind of wish it was a bit longer because it seems like there's more to tell us. More I to could explain. use
4: uh, some more explanation.
3: The score from Howard Shore is awesome. reminiscent of Carpenter's work. Yeah notably Halloween 3 at times although it's not quite as digital technology, right. yeah electronic but it, it's got that same vibe to it in a way videodrome as downbeat and paranoid fueled as it is fits alongside not only Halloween 3 but also the paranoia 70s pictures like Clute the conversation the parallax view three mm. days of the Condor etc etc except of course, because it's Cronenberg, there's the whole body horror science fiction element to it. But when you strip that element away, you are left with that grimy, paranoia, mm-hmm. conspiracy, yeah. something's afoot thing going on. I've got to figure this out. I'm up against the clock. Yeah. It has that
4: leftover 70s feel to it.
3: Yeah. Well, it was made in Canada. They're a couple of years behind. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Barry Convex is played by Leslie Carlson, who appears in several other Cronenberg movies. This character was modeled after televangelist Jim Baker. Convex is of the Spectacular Optical Corporation, an eyeglasses company that acts as a front for an arms company. How about that? That definitely ties in with something from the 70s, it feels like. Right. A car picks Max up, and a television in the vehicle explains all of this to him. There's definitely a ton of businesses that I drive past that I'm just like, this has to be completely a (laughs) front. A front for a company that's putting violent pornography on TV with the intent to cause brain tumors. Well, this is Pittsburgh. Videodrome is not ready yet. These were test transmissions. No one was supposed to see it. They're sort of buttering his bread a little bit. Yeah, we recruited you. Like, look, man, that's pretty cool that you discovered this. No one was supposed to see it yet, so now we're going to let you in on it. Of course, everything they're saying is bullshit, but- Making him feel good. Max is met by Convex at a spectacular optical storefront. Once Inside, Convex presents Max with a device that can supposedly record one of Max's hallucinations.
2: Here she is. This is our prototype. This is the little number that started it all. Max, I would like you to try this on for size. I would like to use this machine to record one of your hallucinations. Now, then I would like to take that tape back with me to home base for analysis. So
0: I, so I get to keep the copyright? I mean, I hate to see it show up as a movie of the week and not get paid for it.
2: <laughs> Max, I'm trying to help you. What makes you think I need help, Barry? None of our test subjects has returned to normality. They're all in need of intensive psychiatric care. Now, you seem to be functioning reasonably well, so far. I'd like to find out why. And I think an analysis of one of your hallucinations would be the right place to start. Will it hurt? It won't hurt you. You might catch yourself sliding in and out of a hallucinatory state after this is all over. If you do, just relax and enjoy it. It'll soon go away. But for now, I think that you'll find a little s and will be necessary to trigger off a good healthy series of hallucinations. That's why our Videodrome show is so strange. Something to do with the effects of exposure to violence on the nervous system. It opens up receptors in the brain and the spine and that allows the Videodrome signal to sink in. You mean I'm going to have to hurt you, Barry? <laughs> Afraid not. You don't have to actually hurt anybody. You just have to think about it.
0: Oh, no, 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 that, that, that's too bright, I
2: can't take nice, it Yes, I forgot,
4: sorry
0: Shit, yeah. That. yeah, yeah, that's fine
2: Okay, we're rolling The taping mechanism is all self-contained You don't have to do anything now but hallucinate Yeah, yeah, okay You'll forgive me if I don't stay around to watch.
4: I just can't cope with the freaky stuff. Seems like a comfortable device to wear.
3: Yeah, Cronenberg actually had to double for James Woods here because they were afraid that it might actually electrocute him. Wow. So Cronenberg just did it himself, just in case. This thing would be embarrassing. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just gonna tell everyone what your fantasy is. Yikes. And I was stunned when Max's fantasy was mine. (laughs) I was like, get out of my brain. (laughs) Max's fantasy in the device is whipping Nikki in Videodrome, who, by the way, is still currently MIA. No explanation as to where she is. And then as he's doing it, it turns into him actually whipping a TV with her on it on the screen. Mm -hmm. But then she turns into Masha. And then just as suddenly as anything, Max awakens as if from a dream. He's back in his apartment. His television is on, just static playing in the corner. And worst of all, Masha's corpse is in the bed next to him. He frantically calls Harlan to come photograph the body as evidence. But when Harlan arrives, Masha's body is no longer anywhere to be found. And this is when I put the note, Max, pretty cool apartment. Definitely. Because this is where you first get to see yeah. the doors that go into the bedroom and the whole layout. I know, because it we keep using the same
4: words, but it does seem seedy your first few views of it. Because when they're hooking up the first time, it's just got the mattress laying in front of the TV in the living room situation going on.
3: Yeah, it did seem like a one room apartment, and I then know. all of a sudden there were more rooms. Oh
4: yeah, and then you're like, well, why weren't you leveraging this really cool bedroom with the double glass doors?
3: Because they got to be near the, near the TV. I know. They're addicted to the TV. I get it. Max wants to see the latest video drone broadcast, so he meets Harlan at the studio later that morning. However, things take a turn that Max could have never expected. Harlan reveals that he has been working with Convex with the goal of recruiting Max to their cause, which is to end North America's cultural decay by giving fatal brain tumors to anyone so obsessed with sex and violence that they would actually watch video drum
4: and this is part of what was like reminding me of total recall because it's like these people in his life weren't really who I right. thought they were and they're all acting different two years yeah of harlan working with him just to set this up i would have preferred sharon stone but as my
3: wife <laughs> to you know, be fair yeah if i'm gonna be duped it's a bit harsh that anyone who checks out video is gonna get this brain tumor i know because even if you're not that depraved I feel like you're going to look at it. You're going to be like, what is this? This is on TV? It's a little too mind-blowing to just ignore it completely.
4: I kind of feel like I'd come over here to do the pod, and you'd be like, dude, you won't believe what I found.
3: (laughs) I found this show called Videodrome. It's great. It's like, great. Now I have a brain tumor. (laughs) My recommendations for this week, Videodrome on the UHF channel 83. Check it out. We also discover and confirm that Harlan never actually watched the show. And if you pay attention, neither he nor Convex actually ever looks at it in the movie.
0: North America is getting soft, Patron. And the rest of the world is getting tough. Very, very tough. We're entering savage new times. And we're going to have to be pure and direct and strong if we're going to survive them. Now, you and this uh, cesspool you call a television station and uh, your people who wallow around in it and uh, your viewers who watch you do it, you're rotting us away from the inside. We intend to stop that rot.
3: And now things get even weirder. Yes. Convex then inserts a pulsating, brainwashing Betamax tape into Max's torso. Yeah, it is weird how they'll AKA just like, yeah. his tummy pussy. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but the, they kind of, it's almost like they treat him like a dog or something. They're just like, open up. We got
3: something for you. It's completely insane. Yeah. He's just got this giant gash on his uh-huh. stomach that they can just insert tapes into- <laughs> You know, it's at a, this moment where you may start to really wonder why this didn't connect with a wider audience <laughs> in 83. Let's just put this in 900 All. theaters right Dude. now and see what happens. If you and me saw this in the theater, how many walkouts would there be? Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. I would have been like, this is my favorite movie of 1983 without question. Absolutely. They had to use Betamax tapes because VHS tapes were too big for the false stomach that they built. Right. What Convex and Harlan and everyone behind this plan really want is Channel 83. They want to expose Videodrome to the masses. This is their plan. And I guess by inserting these tapes into the stomach of someone under the influence of Videodrome, that's how you control them. But I guess it's all theoretical because we understand as viewers now that what we're watching is hallucinations. So they must be controlling him in some way unless you take everything that happens to be fake at the end of the film, but I don't. I think that he is actually committing the crimes that he then commits throughout the rest of the movie, and also what happens at the end really happens too. But it's these exterior forces that are persuading him to do it somehow. And then the visualization in the hallucination is, oh, we're taking a tape and jamming it in your tummy, pussy. Well,
4: because of these actions, and the fact that he just sort of goes along with that... The way people are acting, the things that are happening, I just kept expecting the end of this movie to be him coming out of this hallucination. Yeah. Now, that is not the case. Well, he's too,
3: he can't. He's right. got the tumor. Yeah. It's, it's over. over. It's over, Johnny.
4: But even the tumor seemed to me like it could not be the case. Just because the way that she even explains it to him is so nonchalant. She's just yeah. sort of like, yeah, you have a tumor now.
3: Yeah, well... I guess we don't really know what all the stages are and how long everything would take, and true. Because if you only get exposed once, is that different from watching it a bunch of times? I don't know. Does that intensify your tumor situation?: It seems like it probably would, Yeah, but I don't know the rules. We
2: want channel 83, Max. Give it to us. Give us channel 83 Kill your partners. Kill them. Kill your partners and give us Channel 83.
3: (sighs) Max reaches into his stomach slit and retrieves the gun he put there earlier in the film.
4: Oh, that's where I put it.
3: Covered in goo, the gun fuses itself to his hand with spring metal spikes. Piercing into his palm and then into his wrist and connecting into his wrist. It's
4: insane. We're full blown body horror now.
3: Under Convex's orders, Max murders his colleagues at Civic TV. I thought it was pretty cool, though, that you see this horrific thing and his hand is like huge and then like melding right. together with the gun. And then when he walks into Civic TV, it's pretty noticeable that his hand is normal. Yeah. So it's a difference between POV, almost. I think that from his POV, he has the gun hand, the flesh gun. But from what other people are seeing. But when he charges in there and starts doing this, he's just a crazy guy with a gun. Yeah. The story has mutated into a first-person POV descent into nightmarish delusions. The viewer can't tell what's really happening anymore because the protagonist can't either either. Next up, Convex wants Max to murder Bianca Oblivion, so Max breaks into the shelter, which is closed, but she sees it coming from a mile away. She knows exactly why he's there. Again, he's got the gross mutant gun hand going. Bianca manages to stop Max by showing him a videotape of Nikki's murder on the Videodrome set. Bianca says, and I quote, because I want to break this down, they killed her, Max, They killed Nikki Brand. She died on Videodrome. They used her image to seduce you, but she was already dead. Hmm. That's all she says about that, that one sentence. They used her image to seduce you, but she was already dead.
4: And it does make you wonder, what do you
3: mean already dead? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways you can interpret this, but I think the most logical would be that she was always dead from the beginning. Not even appearing on the talk show? I guess,
4: yeah, okay.
3: The other way you could interpret it is that she's been dead since she reappeared, which the first time she reappears is in yeah. Brian Oblivion's tape, where she right. kills him. That explanation seems easier to understand. The second time she appears is in the fantasy helmet, yes that they record. But is she seducing him in those moments, or has he already been seduced, which happened when he dated her? hmm And so she already knew about Videodrome? Okay, I guess my problem with this is, if Spectacular Optical has the ability to resurrect people or to make them so realistic that you think that you're not only having sex with her, but piercing her ears and doing this whole thing, and she seems real... I don't know. Is that part of it? Because then that seems like such an advanced hallucination that it contradicts what Oblivion says about how his hallucinations will keep getting worse. Because that is by far the biggest one that lasts the longest. Definitely. But I'm not sure what they're trying to insinuate. If it's not part of the hallucination game and then they've just used her image to seduce him in some other way, then what do they even need Videodrome for? Because it seems like their powers are unfathomable. They're like gods where they're able to either make a fake person or you're starting to wonder like and who all is this for (laughs) well they want to just be gained here they want to trim out the fat Uh because they think that the rest of the world is passing north america by they always have to say north america because of the canadian element yeah but we know that they're really kind of talking about america (laughs) no offense (laughs) but we know what that means yeah but yeah, they're like, "Oh, we got to get rid of the scum, the dregs of society." Right. To toughen up. It's sort of a flimsy rationale, but whatever. They're crazy, I guess. Sure. I don't know. This just stuck out to me as such a weird thing to throw in here without an, any more explanation. I guess it just
4: keeps you off balance.
3: So does she just live in fantasy in the movie? Like she's it's just a fantasy. It's hard for me to
4: not believe that she's real in their first interactions.
3: Yeah, it would be tough to believe because he's only seen that one little clip of Videodrome. And how is that enough to get him to hallucinate an entire person? Yeah. And how do you know that he's going to do it? In other words, if they are using her image to seduce him, quote unquote, Yeah, how do you know that's going to work so and it's how like, it's going to happen? Would it have
4: to be that the whole talk show was a hallucination then? Or I don't
3: know. <laughs> was he on the talk show? Well, that gives into the whole thing of it not being a hallucination, that right. she's some almost like you want to talk about Halloween 3 like the, oh. <laughs> the theory in Halloween 3 that the girl is never real and that she's one of those robots the entire time which doesn't make sense right. but you start going down that road of thinking okay so she's not a hallucination she's actually there but it's not really Nikki Brand but what is she then and that gets you to the whole thing of well if they can do that if they have that kind of power yeah then what is all of this other shit for they already seem like they have unlimited power
4: I don't think we've quite cracked the case.
3: I just could have used a little bit more explanation as to what they mean. Mm-hmm. The screen with Nikki's murder turns to static and then the shape of Max's flesh gun emerges from the screen. It looks awesome, but it sounds insane to try to explain what that even means. There you go. It shoots Max a couple of times in the torso, effectively removing Convex's cassette to change the program. Again, this is all very symbolic. Yeah, yeah. He's becoming a gun for hire, too. Yeah. She's like, all right, well, I know you were programmed to kill me, but now I'm going to switch that up and you're going to go do my bidding. It's
4: Terminator 2 now.
3: Bianca essentially reprograms Max to her father's cause, death to Videodrome, long live the new flesh. His mission is reversed. Max kills Harlan first, casually showing up at Spectacular Optical, which I thought was kind of funny, even if it was unintentionally funny. Just chilling. Oh, yeah. He's wanted for the murders at Channel 83, but he's like, oh, hey, how's it going? I'm here. <laughs> Even Harlan's like, wait, what What are you doing here? Yeah, what's yeah. going on now? Because uh-huh. he doesn't know that his orders have been reversed, but at the same time, he's probably thinking, this doesn't make sense. Why is he here? Right. I'm just hanging out. I thought maybe pick up some new eyeglasses, <laughs> see what's going on. Harlan is going to attempt to change Max's program again, and he reaches into the stomach slit. Yeah. It looks like he pulls back a bloody stump. I didn't know what this was supposed to be. It's a hand grenade attached to his stump. Okay. Sort of like the same idea as the flesh gun on his hand, but instead it's a grenade which eventually explodes. Yeah. With the iconic line See you in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Right. <laughs>
7: <laughs> See
0: you
3: in Pittsburgh. Now that Harlan's out of the way, Convex is up next. He's presenting the spring collection of the spectacular optical glasses at a trade show. Max walks onto the stage, kills him on stage with the gun hand deal. This is completely insane. And out of all of the inexplicable things that happen in this movie, this one might be right at the top because after he shoots Convex, it's like he ceases to be human. He's like some sort of thing out of the thing yeah it is very reminiscent because his like chest and stomach sort of rip open like that one guy in the thing and then his head is sort of like disintegrating and melting and it, it it's almost like there's something going on inside of him that's not human organs it's all this like weird moving i don't know what the fuck is going on disturbing uh, it's not for me i'll tell you that i'll tell you this it's gross <laughs> and there's a lot of horrible noise going on with it just disgusting it's gross and i'm not into it <laughs> oh i'm into it <laughs> i was very into it <laughs> it was my own personal video videodrome yeah. give me that gooey shit well what was his most recent movie that crimes of
4: the future or whatever yeah oh my there was a ton of like weird organ shit in that
3: too yeah what's the thing they say in that i don't know. surgery remember. is the new sex oh or something. yeah he's yeah, always yeah. got these like weird expressions that people use long live the new flesh yeah. Wanted for both of their murders, as well as those of his colleagues, Max flees and takes refuge on a derelict boat in the Portlands, appearing to him on a television, which for some reason is on this boat. Nikki tells him that he is weak in Videodrome, but in order to completely defeat it, he must ascend to the next level and, quote, leave the old flesh. The television then shows an image of Max shooting himself in the head, which causes the television set to explode with a bunch of organs coming out of it. Very weird and gross. Reenacting what he has just seen on the television, Max utters the words, Long live the new flesh, and shoots himself in the head. And what does this actually accomplish? He just sends to the next level. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Valhalla. It could be that he's part of the remaining strand of Videodrome, and that he just knows too much and he's gonna die anyway so might as well cut to the chase
1: I'm here to guide you Max I've learned a lot since I last saw you I've learned that death is not the end I can help you
0: I don't know where I am now I'm having trouble finding my way around
1: that's because you've gone just about as far as you can with the way things are Videodrome still exists It's very big, very complex. You've hurt them, but you haven't destroyed them. To do that, you have to go on to the next phase.
0: What phase is that?
1: Your body has already done a lot of changing. But that's only the beginning. The beginning of the new flesh. You have to go all the way now. Total transformation. Do you think you're ready? Yes, I am. How do we do it? To become the new flesh, you first have to kill the old flesh. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to let your body die. Just come to me, Max. Come to Nikki. Watch. I'll show you how.
3: Similar to The Fly, just somebody getting shot in the head, credits. (laughs) Not a lot of buoyant hope coming out of the theater with these Cronenberg movies. But I guess Max was never a great guy. No. Not a lot of people broken up about it when they hear the news. (laughs) Oh, he killed himself on a boat? Well, he also came into our office and shot a bunch of people, (laughs) so fuck him. (laughs) Three different endings were filmed. The ending used in the final film, wherein Max shoots himself on the derelict ship, was James woods's idea one of the initial intentions for the ending was to include an epilogue after the suicide wherein max bianca and nikki appear on the set of videodrome bianca and nikki are shown to have chest slits like max from yeah. which grotesque mutated sex organs emerge fun Cronenberg described his original vision of the ending as follows quote after the suicide Max ends up on the video drum set with Nikki, hugging and kissing, and neat stuff like that. A happy ending? Well, it's my version of a happy ending. Boy <laughs> meets girl on the video drum set with the clay wall maybe covered in blood, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Freudian rebirth imagery, pure and simple. In his director's commentary for the Criterion Collection release of the film, Cronenberg credited his decision to omit the epilogue, at least partially, to his own atheist beliefs. As the apparent resurrection of Max and Nikki on the video drum set could be interpreted as having gone to an afterlife, whereas Cronenberg himself does not believe in one.
4: Okay. I like the James Woods
3: ending. Well, that touches on something else that was going on. There was like a time frame that he had to hurry up and make this movie. So he had the Network of Blood script. That's where the idea came from originally. They sort of rush into production because they have a timeline, because a lot of these Canadian films were funded by public I was taxpayer money and they had to hurry a up bit and, about that. and get it done. So when they went into production on this movie, they really didn't have a completely finished script. So That's the fact fun. that Woods comes up with this ending doesn't seem that implausible because they probably weren't a hundred percent sure
4: where you take something like
3: this. <laughs> where is this going to go next? Yeah. <laughs> I know mutated sex <laughs> organs come out of their <laughs> tummy pussies. Cool. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I think that must have been left out of the elevator pitch for this movie.
3: Any time that I think, "Oh man, we might not have that many more subjects that would be fun to cover," we've been doing this for so long. Then I remember there's like so much shit out there, and we this is only the second Cronenberg movie we've done. Yeah, and they're all very fascinating and interesting for the most part. There's definitely a bunch that I haven't seen still. So I wanted to go through his filmography just a little bit because to start a career, it's a run that is almost unparalleled for eight out of the nine first films he makes in terms of features. I've actually seen way more of the second half of his career. So I've
4: probably missed most of the good stuff.
3: Shivers in 75. Awesome. Rabbit in 77. Awesome. The most inexplicable movie in his career is a film called fast company in 1979, which is not anything like his other movies. I know I have watched that. (laughs) It's baffling. Yeah. So that's the one when I say 8 out of 9, because you're like, what, what the fuck is this? The Brood in 79. Now we're going to like a whole other level. Shivers and Rabbit are both cool, but they're very small budget, a little bit more limited. The Brood is awesome. Scanners in 81. I'm not the biggest Scanners fan, but it is iconic. It has one of the coolest head explosions. Right. It's what puts him on the mainstream. It's what gets him this big studio attention for Videodrome because Scanners actually made money.
4: When I watched an interview with him, the guy asking the questions asked, how do you feel about being known as the exploding head guy? (laughs) And he was like, I'm comfortable with it, at least until my next movie comes out.
3: (laughs) In 83, he has Videodrome and The Dead Zone, which is one of the more underrated Stephen King adaptations. Oh,
4: shit. Okay. I didn't realize he directed that.
3: The Fly in 86, just an all-timer. One of the best horror movies ever made. Legendary. And then he closes out the 80s with Dead Ringer's twin evil sadistic gynecologists played by Jeremy Irons. Wow. The 90s is a little bit more hit or miss. I haven't seen all of them, so I can't fully comment on them. But I know that Crash in 96 is a masterpiece.
4: Yeah. That's one that... I like more the further I get away from
3: it. <laughs> we might do that one sometime yeah. on the show. We're, of course, not talking about the Oscar-winning crash in case there's any confusion. Yeah, because that small. one's not a masterpiece. No, this is something else. This is about people who get turned on by car crashes. <laughs> 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 Completely normal. Yeah. Then he has this weird resurgence, and it's his most critically acclaimed in the sense that he gets like Oscar recognition, all this different stuff this partnership with Vigo, mm-hmm. A History of Violence in 05, Eastern Promises in 07. Those are the two standouts in terms of popularity. I did note a few other of his films. I don't have them all written down here, but A Dangerous Method in 2011, a movie that features Keira Knightley being like whipped and hmm. whatever, spanked and stuff. It's still somehow completely boring. Okay. Don't know <laughs> it. Despite having that... Vigo and... Why am I blanking on who the other guy is? I'm not sure. This movie is not on my radar at all. Oh, Fassbender. Okay. Vigo and Fassbender, Keira Knightley, they're like Freud and Carl Jung and the whole thing. Gotcha. It's fine, but it's kind of boring. But I think a late career masterpiece, Maps to the Stars, I know not everyone's there yet, I think it's one of those ones that is so dark. Yeah. And depressing. In a way that even these other films aren't. Because... It's not as supernatural. There's a lot of fucked up people. There's a lot of weird shit in it, though. Yeah, but it's not really like like full supernatural. Not
4: like organs and shit, but people's, mostly their behavior and the shit that they say. It's so
3: vile and horrifying, but I love it. (laughs) That's another one I kind of want to do on the show. Which I don't think he worked again until Crimes of the Future, which came out last year. Wow. I wasn't super into it although yeah i did find it fascinating in its own weird way
4: yeah i guess it's always interesting with him that's fair to say
3: yeah there was something that was just off about it for me i don't know if it was the pacing or the lighting or whatever but it didn't quite come off i thought i wasn't
4: in love with the world it took place in
3: Yeah, I thought maybe the budget could have been a little higher or something. It just wasn't quite clicking, but I still was interested in it. And then his upcoming movie has Leah Sidhu and Vincent Cassell in it Okay. called The Shrouds. I don't know when that's supposed to come out, but he wrote and directed it. Like in my notes, I put a star next to Vincent Cassell and then wrote Wife Situation. I was looking at the two people in the cast and thinking all right well Cassell, i mean what a legend he was married to monica bellucci Oof. for like 14 years what a run i look at his imdb i'm like oh he got remarried and then i'm looking at this girl she's very beautiful maybe an actress maybe a model but she is on imdb i, I my eyes glance over across born 1997 holy shit <laughs> Ten years younger than me. I almost fell out of my chair. He was born in 1966. <laughs> she was two years old when he got married to Monica Bellucci. Yeah, I don't know. At a certain point, it does seem criminal. I was like, whoa, Vincent
4: Cassell out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, once you tie down Monica Bellucci,
3: I yeah. think everybody's like, this guy must have something. It's like Pete Davidson times 10. Yeah. Once you're in that Monica Bellucci class. Right. Come on. There's a lot of knocks at the door.
1: (laughs) What are you doing?
3: What? What? Vincent stopped making picks.
1: Well, how am I going to know what movies to see?
3: We have a wide variety of Gene picks.
1: Gene's trash.
3: I'm Gene. Let's do a quick recommendation, and then we're going to wrap it up pretty short. Do you have anything? No, go ahead. You don't have anything? No. I'm just going to double dip on something I talked about earlier a few months ago, but it's now available to stream on Peacock for free. It's my favorite film of last year. It's nominated for Best Picture. Oh. It's called Tar. Yes. It's on Peacock. Watch it. It's a fascinating movie that I haven't really been able to stop thinking about what I think it means. Everyone else seems to dial into that too. On the surface, it seems somewhat straightforward. But there's a lot of weird stuff in it. I don't know fully what any of it means. A lot of people have theories. Is it a horror movie at heart? It seems like there's audio taken from Blair Witch Project or something and put over one part of it. I think that's what people matched it up to on YouTube. Wow. And you're like And but it's never explained. You're like, what? What is happening right now? But like when you watch it, you're not dialing in all of that. You're thinking, okay, this is like a straightforward story about the downfall of a a predator a Me Too type situation. But then there's shit in it where you're like, wait a minute, this girl said she lived here, but then it's like an abandoned house and building. Did she just say that because she didn't want Tar to know where she lived? Or is this all a fantasy, a hallucination, like fucking Videodrome? The ending, everyone's like, is this real or not real? It's a very layered movie. It's It's way more complicated than I think it seems. I loved it. I have to tell you,
4: of everything that's nominated for Best Picture, this is number one on my list of want to watch the runtime is daunting finding the right moment has been difficult for me
3: (laughs) well it'll be worth it yes
4: i am looking forward to it
3: so we'll leave it at that for recommendations thank you so much for listening for checking us out please tell a friend spread the word thanks for the support thanks for checking in if you have on twitter at greatest pod thanks for the ratings and reviews on apple Podcasts, if you've done that if you haven't Gotten Please around do. to it. This is a great time to do so. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or wherever you find us. If you'd like a free sticker, you can let us know on Twitter and you can find us on Letterboxd. See what we're watching. Man, I watched another Diane Lane forgotten movie from the 80s on VHS last night for that the is- first time. You're living like
4: a video drum life.
3: Not as good as the last one I talked about. No okay.
4: Pittsburgh connection.
3: <laughs> it's a movie called Priceless Beauty with Christopher Lambert. Wow. She sucks on his chin at one point. Yikes. Not a good movie. No, no. Terrible, really. Not
4: something I want to see happen.
3: Anywho, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. More information, hopefully, on the listener request deal next week. Finally, we'll get that all straightened out. I know so many of you are worried about it. I'm kind of like rooting for it to just never happen. There's a chance that we're never going to mention it again. It just doesn't seem like it's worth the effort anymore. But anyway, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Talk to you soon.
8: Maybe I didn't love you Quite as often as I could have Maybe I didn't treat you quite as good as I should have. If I made you feel second best, you Girl, I'm sorry, I have I never told you, I'm so happy that you're mine. Little things I should have said and done. I just never took the time. But you were all.